This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Ian McCutcheon. Ian runs a mixed farming operation with Dhoni sheep, winter cereal and legume crops and beef cattle on their family property, Berida, just west of Gilgandra. In this episode, Ian relates some of the challenges he's faced from simultaneously running a cattle, sheep and grain operation, identifying how surrounding yourself with a good set of advisors can help with critical decision-making. You'll also hear Ian discuss the long history of their property at Berida, including their wool shed, which is one of the largest and oldest wool sheds in the district, having been constructed in 1899. Ian tells us how they've utilised the wool shed for agritourism and tells us how it's been a great opportunity for connecting the local community with the farming history of Gilgandra. Local Land Services cropping advisor Tim Bartimo caught up with Ian to escape the summer heat around the kitchen table at Berida. G'day everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with Ian McCutcheon out of Berida. How are you doing today, Ian? I'm very well, thanks, Tim. Pleased to be here with you. No, thanks for coming on the show. Just wanted to start off, can you tell us a bit about Berida? Berida is a mixed farm situated 20 k's west of Gilgandra towards Warren. It's on the uh, plains very flat country yeah, on the western side of Gilgandra. And what do you do here at Berida? We're mixed farmers. Our main enterprise are merino sheep. In fact, Dooney merino sheep, a South African dual-purpose breed. And we also grow cereals and pulses, or particularly lupins, and we also raise beef cattle, limousine cattle. Yeah, right. So you've got a fair bit going on. Mixed farming is a busy mixture of enterprises to be in, obviously, yeah. There's always something happening. So how would you describe the country typically at Berida? What kind of soils make up? The official title is 75% of it is grey clay loam. Because we're situated on the Martha Guy Creek, the balance would be sandy clay loams. And how has that impacted the enterprises that you've chosen? The grey clay loams have very good natural grasses, which are very good for raising merino sheep, but at the same time being alkaline and having good soil retaining properties it's also very good for cereal farming whereas the lighter soils the sandier soils being acidic as well suited to cereals but very well suited to growing lupins but being on the martha guy creek it's also a very good country for raising cattle not as good for sheep because uh, with waterways you get spiny grass and you get other weeds that don't lend themselves as well to dual purpose merinos better for cattle than cropping too. Now, Ian, I know you've been farming here for a little while. How long has your family been on Berida? We came here in 1909, so we've been here nearly 120 years, or getting close. Well, that's quite an achievement. Can you tell us a bit about the story of how that came about? This property, Berida, used to be 160,000 acres. It was the largest property in this district. It has been cut up for closer settlement three times, maybe four times in its history. My grandfather applied for the manager's job here in 1909 for six months 
and he came for the rest of his life. And after the final cut-up of Beretta Station, he was offered the homestead block to purchase, and he did. So he came for six months and stayed for the rest of his life and purchased the, the centre block of Beretta in 1949. And so are you currently working here by yourself or you've got a, a few labourers or...? Yeah, I've got a full-time worker and my sons assist me as well. They've, in conjunction with my wife, Diane, we've bought two extra properties close to Gorgandra so that we're setting them up on their own blocks of farm blocks and then eventually in succession planning they will either lease, share farm or purchase the nucleus of Berida from us. That's the plan, but succession planning is underway, but it's not complete. How have you found that process so far? Uh, it's been fairly good. We've taken good advice from accountants and solicitors, and so far it's been fairly good. I've seen uh, the difficulties others have had, and we've tried to avoid some of the pitfalls that I've seen in other families. I guess like being in you know the middle of January when we're recording this, Reflecting back on the year that's been. It was a challenging year. It was a high rainfall year. We had imperial terms, I think we had 34 inches, which is about 875 mils. And that sounds wonderful, but it was difficult getting work done and difficult getting the crop in and we had some crop losses. And in addition to that, it was difficult for livestock, sheep in particular, because the ground was wet and there were health problems associated with that and there were increased levels of internal and external parasites. It was a good year, but it was a difficult year. Difficult year for cropping and for sheep in particular. So what were some of the cropping challenges that you faced in particular? Uh, paddocks were waterlogged. It was hard to get onto paddocks for tillage or spraying. We sowed paddocks and had big rains afterwards, which uh, drowned to, uh, two of our crops. We couldn't spray weeds as we normally would because the ground was just simply too wet to get onto. There were probably increased levels of disease too, in wheat in particular. So you said that you're a mixed farming enterprise. Do you find that when you have those challenges in particular parts of your production systems, does it get offset by maybe some other parts of the farm doing better to compensate for that potential loss? It can do. For example, last year cattle were brilliant. Obviously the prices for cattle will record at record high levels and cattle do well in wet weather so although cattle are the smallest of our enterprises they didn't struggle and our profitability was very high from the cattle enterprise whereas it wasn't an easy year with sheep or cropping we didn't have a record year with with either so you said you were doing livers and that's the, the breed of cattle that you produce here how did you get into those when i took over from my father we used to have pole shorthorns and then we went into Hereford, Shorthorn Cross. We decided to go for Limousin because black cattle are very much desired by the market because there's a perception that they have increased marbling in their meat. It might be a real perception. And breeds like Angus and Limousin, and we, we have black Limousin cattle, the market forces really seem to favour them. But in saying that, um, Shorthorns have changed and Shorthorns have adapted their traits to the market and so have Herefords, but... Also with limousins, there are less eye problems than with other breeds. Some breeds have bad eye cancers or eye issues. Well, with limousin, we have very little problems, at least in that area of their constitution. And I guess from your experience, have you are they a, a good breed to work with as opposed to other ones that you've tried in the past? Or do you reckon there's a bit of bias there perhaps? Or? My agent said to me, you have to be careful with limousins. Some of them, they do have a reputation among some farmers for being a little bit wilder than other breeds. 
but we select carefully our sires and we find they're good cattle to work with. But there are breeders with different, slightly different traits even within the one breed. So you've got to be careful where you buy. In our case, we buy size. You've got to be careful where you buy size from. Just then you were saying that you're looking carefully at some of the traits. What particular traits are you identifying as key ones when you go to buy a particular sire? Well, obviously temperament is one, and I just mentioned that. Obviously a muscle development and just a good healthy confirmation in the body. But muscling is very important, obviously, when you're breeding cattle for beef. Say a layperson was just to rock up, how would they go about developing? Is that just a skill set that you've developed over time? Do you identify those things or is it? I have some skill sets in that area, but I rely very much on the advice of my agent too, who's very skilled with livestock. And he sees a wide range of cattle and sheep and therefore his advice is, I find, is very sound. With sheep, we employ the use of a sheep classer, professional sheep classer, and he advises us on sheep selection. Yeah, that's interesting because I know that you, you've mentioned that you use an agronomist as well for your cropping side of things. So how important have you found having good advisors around you to help you make the best decision possible when it comes to various things? I think it's very important because advisors see a wide range of issues and they see a wide range of products available, a wide range of livestock in the case of sheep and cattle, and therefore they can draw from that experience to give you good advice. But nevertheless, being the owner-manager, one always has to be prepared to take on new advice, but if necessary, back your own opinion when you know that advice may not be suited to your situation, which does sometimes happen. So you're weighing this advice from people who are being exposed across a variety of different properties, looking at different animals and coming across new products and that sort of thing so they can give you pretty informed opinion. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. Yes, yes. And sometimes I have ignored ex- advisors' advice and sometimes it hasn't helped me <laughs> because advisors give the best advice they can, but there's always cost limitations. Sometimes we ignore advice and it's not good and sometimes we take advice and it's very, very helpful. I've known you for a little while and it's pretty well known around the area that you have a very old wool shed. You've already said that 120 years your family roughly has been associated with this property. Can you tell us a bit about the wool shed on this place, on Berida? Yes, the wool shed is is a feature in this district because it's probably one of the oldest wool sheds standing and and it's probably the biggest. It used to be in its heyday. It used to be have 20 shearers. 20 stander in Gorgandra district is a very big wool shed. It was built in 1899. And it was the first shed on Berida that to be run by machines. The previous shed was built for 27 blade shearers. So this was the new technology coming to Berida, run by a steam engine with 20 shearers. The wool shed is a landmark because it's been used for many different activities. It's still used as a working wool shed with only three shearers, but it's also used for weddings, seminars, Christian youth camps, bush dances, 21sts, and some people have camped there and had engagement parties there. So it's been used for many things. It's a dual-purpose woolshed, multi-purpose woolshed, in fact. I think I've been to a couple of weddings here. Definitely a good facility, and you've actually spent a bit of time doing it up. It's not just a woolshed. It's got, yeah, bathrooms and all different amenities and that sort of thing. What's your thoughts behind that? Like- the thoughts were we had the centenary of the woolshed in 1999, and we improved the facilities there because that was an open day where – Every school in Gorgandra came out and, you know, we had a 1,000 visitors on the first day, knew we needed better facilities 
ongoing, especially for the youth camps and other activities there. So we have as many shearers have wanted for years, flushing toilets, including a disabled toilet, because we also have farm tours at the Woolshed. And farm tours particularly developed after the centenary for groups like Probus clubs, car clubs. We've even had a preschool group come and school groups from many places come to see shearing to learn about the history of the wool industry and just to have the general farm experience. The wool shed needed some repairs, which we did, but we've also improved the kitchen and bathroom facilities so it can be used for other things as well. And so is the farm tourism side of things, is that just, you know, you want to contribute to the community or is that seen as another enterprise of its own? It's a bit of everything, Tim. The most it's ever contributed to our farm income is 1%. It's well behind the other three enterprises in what it produces for us, but... It needs to start pulling its weight. Yeah, our marketing has been very poor since we bought extra land. Uh, the demands of my time have been greater because the other properties aren't adjoining. Perhaps it's something I'm ticking over for my semi-retirement. My wife Diane and I enjoy people and enjoy having busloads of people come to our wool shed, but really it needs to be marketed better to grow as a business and an enterprise. But it's also been a means of justifying keeping the facilities and improving the facilities and it also has an element of serving the community particularly the tours that come from school groups and christian groups that we don't charge another reason we have put time and money into keeping the wool shed is to enable the community to enjoy what is a, a landmark in this district such as the Christian youth groups, the young people who come out for bush dances or weddings or probus clubs or whoever comes to enjoy the wool shed. Anything we earn from the wool shed sort of goes back into the wool shed, but it also enables us to be a support the community by offering the wool shed free for those groups, like school groups or Christian groups who we don't charge for the use of the facility. In saying that though, you're still using it as a wool shed we still use it as a working wool shed and sometimes there is a little bit of conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> multiple parties want to use it at once. We have had occasionally multiple parties want to use it at once, but with wool, you've got to be very careful of contamination in the wool. And we had a wonderful wedding there last year and there was confetti all over the floor. So obviously our cleaning standards, when it's a working wool shed used for beautiful merino wool, and for weddings and parties and anything, we have to improve our cleaning standards. It takes a little bit of cleaning sometimes. Do you think people often get that report back that there's too much confetti in their wool? <laughs> I'm the wool classer, so I have to certify that there's no contamination in the wool, so I make sure it's cleaned well. I'm just imagining all this confetti in your wool, and you're just like, oh, no, what am I going to do about this? Buy confetti, it's not like it used to be. Confetti takes all sorts of shapes now. Rice would be fine, but no one seems to use rice in their wool shed. My wife, who was just walking by, chimed in that they use gum leaves a lot now too. But gum leaves are only vegetable matter, so they're okay and will provided there's not too much. So do you have uh, shearing crews coming in? Yes, we have shearing crews. They don't camp in the shearers' huts anymore. They now, what they call suburban shearers, they drive in and out each day because there's been no one staying in the shearers' quarters uh, for the purposes of shearing since the road to Gander was tarred. The shearing quarters are still there. And we've turned them into all into museums with displays of the history of Berida and the sheep and wool industries for our farm tours. So we've also <laughs> taken on the project of upkeeping all the shearers' quarters. So you're a full-time farmer, 
as well as a full-time event planner slash tourism guide from the sounds of things. Part-time tourism event manager, organizer, full-time farmer. No, that's great. That's really interesting. Just moving on to focus a bit more on your sheep enterprise. You were talking before, saying before that in the 120 years of Berida, there's been a change in terms of the focus in terms of sheep from predominantly wool to include a bit of meat and wool now. How have you found that over the time you've been here? Well, for us, the change to a more dual-purpose sheep has been forced by economics because wool has been uh, very much up and down in prices. Wool used to be the largest export industry in Australia, largest single export, I think, up until 1970. And now it's the last time figure I heard is it's now only a $2 billion industry, which means so many other enterprises earn more export income than wool. We've followed that in trying to maintain profitability by moving to merinos that have a heavier carcass weight and therefore can attract good prices for their lamb or mutton. I don't see wool ever recurring to where it was. It won't happen because wool is only, I think, 2% of the world apparel trade. But wool is a um, beautiful product, a natural fibre with great qualities. So wool will always be around. Some of the natural fibres can never match wool for its qualities. But the increasing wool population and increasing demand in the Middle East and in Asia for lamb and meat products, the emphasis both in income and probably direction will be, will be in lamb and, and mutton. So in saying that, Knowing there is a high demand now and potentially an even greater demand in the future for meat products, particularly lamb, what's stopping you from just shifting a prime lamb system and staying with the doonies? Well, I am traditional in my nature and I do love the product wool. And wool is still very a very valuable uh, product on our sheep. Our wool this year sold for a reasonable price and a sustainable price. So I do believe merino sheep with the good wool qualities are still a very profitable enterprise. It's a simpler enterprise, in my opinion, to run than a fat lamb enterprise. Fat lambing is more intensive and it requires more attention for the nutrition, whereas on our country, much of which is native grass country, merinos do very well. Whereas if you have prime lambs or second cross lambs, there is a need to plant more uh, fodder crops and more attention to nutrition to get the best out of that those enterprises. Although you see the market can shift a little bit, you still see a place for wool going forward, but you also enjoy producing that product and it's suited to your country. Yeah, yeah. I do have a personal preference for a merino sheep. I do like the product wool. I like wearing wool. I love good wool products and I think wool has a good future but it's a change future. Um, it's good to have sheep too that have a good carcass that we can also sell and achieve good prices in the meat market. So I guess with the Doonies, you're trying to take advantage of the potential opportunities while still staying true to what you guys have been doing for a long time and will want to do continuing into the future. Yes, that's true. But in fairness to other Merino breeders, all Merino stud producers have been doing what Doonies can offer. They've all been concentrating on the traits that lend themselves to good lambs. So the whole merino industry's changed. Maybe not the, of course, the ultrafines and the superfines where the wool is the principal aim to produce wool of a really good quality, but all merino producers have kept their eye on the markets and they're trying to breed 
animals with traits that lend themselves to good lambs and heavier body weights. Oh, well, thanks, Ian, very much for the chat today. Look forward to hearing how you go this year. Thanks very much, Tim. And most farmers, ironically, are saying they're looking forward for an average year, whatever that is. I don't know. I haven't seen one yet. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.